Faith in the Lord unites all believers. It speaks of personal and corporate commitments to Jesus. There's one faith. Faith is saying, yes, God is doing what he's doing. Having faith is not saying that God is going to do everything I think he's going to do. That's not faith. Faith is not like positive confession. Like, I believe God wants to give me a Mercedes. And so I I have faith that God will do that. No, faith is trusting that God will do what he knows is best not necessarily what I think he should do. Say you were playing a game with someone. They had to guess an object you were thinking of with only one word as a clue. You say red. The object could be so many things. People play this game all the time with God, embracing one attribute of his and ignoring the others. But as we'll hear in today's teaching, that only leads to an untrue picture of who God is. We want the fullness of God. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 4, with our continuing study entitled, Fruit in the Mess. Gentleness is humility in action. When you think of yourself rightly, poor in spirit, then you are gentle with people. Now, for you guys, listen. This is in the Bible, and I know it's not macho to be gentle, but our job is not to be macho. Our job is to be like Jesus. So gentleness is realizing that people are fragile and taking care of them in such a way. So there's lowliness. There's gentleness. And then, of course, it keeps going because then it says, with long-suffering. Now, that means patience, right? When we realize how long-suffering God is with us, then we just pass that along. The problem with pride is it's pride doesn't see itself for what it truly is. It sees itself for some picture that we've developed over time. God is infinitely patient with all of humanity, and we should be patient with others. That's why it's called long-suffering. It's suffering long. That's what patience is. It's willing to give people the room to be in process, knowing that we're in process. So we have this lowliness. We have this gentleness. We have this long-sufferingness, and then bearing with one another in love, this forbearance. It literally means to hold somebody up. It has the idea to put up with someone's faults and idiosyncrasies in love. Now, that's hard, isn't it? But where is it found? It's found in knowing that we have faults and idiosyncrasies. Jesus used the parable of the guy who wants to deal with the speck in his brother's eyes while he has a plank in his own eye. Very provocative statement. The idea is it's, you have a piece of sawdust in your eye. Yeah, well, you have a four by eight coming out of your eye. And you see what he's doing. He's like, you have a little piece of sawdust, and that's really bugging me, but I have a four by eight which is, could make infinite numbers, pieces of sawdust. And so the idea is Jesus is saying the same thing, that this unity, the fruit of humility then becomes unity. 
And one of the biggest issues humanity has is that we're not lowly, we're not gentle, we don't long suffer with one another, and we don't hold each other up and forbear with one another in love. Instead, everyone's looking at everybody else seeing what everyone else is doing wrong rather than saying, what am I, how am I, who am I, and how does it work? And right as there's pride, there is a separation. Because the problem with pride is not only is it not rooted in reality, it's not agreeing with God on what God said we ought to be. Pride is saying, I am better than you. I have it more together than you. I am smarter, better looking, more successful, whatever, than you. Rather than saying, I am a sinner in need of a savior. So all this is about humility. Verse 3, look, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, that's that little bridge there. So we have these four graces of humility, and we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the fruit of humility is unity. And then you get, of course, here into verse 4, and we get these three couplings, three groups of three nouns, all about unity. All about unity. And you'll notice here, verse 4, you have the Spirit. Verse 5, you have the Lord speaking of Jesus. And then verse 6, you have the God and Father. So you have the Trinity here in, the, in these three verses. The Spirit in verse 4, the Lord Jesus in verse 5, and then the Father in verse 6. Three sets of three nouns. Let's look at them. The fruit of humility is unity. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope, of your calling. The church of Jesus Christ is a single visible community. And we always have to keep that in mind, don't we? Here we're at Crossroads Community Church. If you were to drive around the county, there's all sorts of other churches. But there's really only one church. Church with a big C, the church of Jesus Christ. And we always have to, we, look, I love what we do at Crossroads. I've always heard you should pastor a church you'd want to go to, and I'd want to go to Crossroads if I wasn't a pastor here. But we have to remember that we are not in competition with some other church because Jesus has only got one church, church with a big C. So even though we love what we do and we celebrate what we do, we're totally good with other people. And we might not agree on everything, but we should work that out. I think what happens is, is and, and, and in a lot of ways, we're coming out of a season as that in Christianity where everyone was Like, we're fighting for jockeying for position. I don't know what that's all about. I just know Jesus isn't into that. Do you remember the the apostles came? They they even sent John and James. They sent their mom. It's total. That's mean, isn't it? Send your mom to petition Jesus to give them places of honor. I mean, isn't that just wrong? They figured, man, he's a son of God, but man, he loved his mom, and so maybe he'll be real nice to my mom. But John and James, they, they wanted positions of honor. And Jesus is like, can you even drink the cup that I'm going to drink of and be baptized? See, James and John had it all wrong. And Jesus says to them, listen, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't think you're big stuff. See, we're not in competition with other churches. We do have a competition there. We're in a competition with Satan. That's the only guy that I want to have a competition with. And guess what? I read the end of the Bible, so guess what? We already win that one. How cool is that? See, the battle that we do is not against some other church. It's against 
a world that lives in rebellion against God. And and our warfare is not guns. It's not mean words. It's love and self-sacrificial service. And you know what? Love and self-sacrificial service is infinitely attractive. There's only one church. And that one church, that one church, that one body is put together by the one spirit. The spirit of God who indwells the body of Christ. There's not multiple spirits. There's just one. There's the Holy Spirit. And that spirit knits us together as a family of faith. And because there's only one body and there's one spirit, now we have one hope of our calling. And that hope is that we will forever be with Christ, whether on this side or on the other side, whether in this life or in the life to come, that we have been united to Christ by the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. So it makes sense that the one body with the one spirit and the one hope of our calling are all together because it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. He makes us a family of faith and he gives us this hope that high up or low down, we will forever be with Jesus. That is the hope of the people of God. Then in verse five, we move to the Lord Jesus, one Lord or master. This is Jesus to whom we all owe all of our obedience. Now I'm here to tell you this. You've either bowed your knee to the master or you are living in rebellion against him. There's no kind of middle ground. Now, sure, there's some people who haven't bowed their knee, but they're pretty good folks, like they were raised right, they've chosen to live a good life. But you have either joined his army or you are on the opposing army. That's what the Bible says. And I'm not going to try and wiggle around that. That idea of Lord, it means a master. It's the one who, to whom we owe allegiance. And some of us in here today, watching in the chapel, on another venue online, you need to simply say yes to Jesus today. You need to. Because there's one Lord. There's one Lord. And you need to get right with that Lord by saying, yes, okay, I'm not the Lord. Or so-and-so's not the Lord. Really, all of the issues that humanity has comes down to this point. Who is the Lord? In Paul's day, it was Caesar is Lord. And that's why he keeps saying Jesus is Lord, because Caesar is not. In our day, we have a whole other set of people, ideologies that jockey for lordship. And I'm here to tell you, Crossroads isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Does that make sense? There's one Lord. He's the master. We owe him allegiance. And because there is one Lord, then, of course, you have one faith. Faith in the Lord unites all believers. It speaks of personal and corporate commitments to Jesus. There's one faith. Faith is saying, yes, God is doing what he's doing. Having faith is not saying that God is going to do everything I think he's going to do. That's not faith. Faith is not like positive confession, like, I believe God wants to give me a Mercedes, and so I I have faith that God will do that. No, faith is trusting that God will do what he knows is best, not necessarily what I think he should do. And we struggle with that type of faith, don't we? Because we just want what we want. We're looking for any old vending machine who will give us the thing that we want back. But faith in God is not getting what you want. It's trusting that God knows what he's doing in the midst of messy circumstances. So there's one faith, the faith that puts us in the body of Christ, and then there's one baptism. The idea is that there is one external observance of this is what God has done for me, and I believe in it. 
Now, you might say, well, what about the baptism by water and the baptism by spirit? All of those things are about the same thing. It's one baptism. There's one reality that shows our incorporation into the body of Christ. You got to think of what baptism is. It's the identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Just read Romans chapter 6. When someone goes under the water, it's as if they went into the tomb with Jesus. When they come out of the water, it's as if you've been resurrected. There's only one of those. There's only one. And it makes sense. Of course, you have the Lord with faith and baptism. They all go together. And then in verse 6, you have one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So you have the one God and Father of all. And then you have these three modes of action. Now, these are really interesting to me because if you look at each one of these, you can find almost every different belief about God encapsulated in one of these three modes that God works. And when you take one instead of holding all three and you emphasize one other than the rest, then you have a whole other set of beliefs that pop out of it. And as Christians, our job is to believe in all three of these modes, not just one. Notice the first one. The God and Father of all who is above all. This speaks of God's sovereignty, God's transcendence, the reality that God reigns over all things. So a lot of different people believe in a transcendental God, a God who reigns sovereignly over all things. And as Christians, we do as well. We believe in God who is over all, who has total and complete authority over all the workings, not only on earth, but the universe. And if there's anything beyond this universe, which I don't even know if that's possible, he's sovereign over that as well. Complete and total authority over everything. That's the God who's over all. But then there's the God who is through all. Think about that. God is not only over, but God is through. This speaks of God's creativity or God's pervasiveness. This speaks of the fact that God, who reigns sovereign, also works through humanity. Now, if all you believe is a God who works through humanity, but there isn't a sovereign, almighty God, you know what you get? All sorts of New Age beliefs right there. That God works creatively through people. But if you talk to anyone who has a New Age background, I have lots of friends. I moved up here from the Bay Area. There's a lot of that going on up here in the Pacific Northwest. It's all about the deity that works through us, but never the God who is over all. And some people believe in a God who's over all, but doesn't work through people. There's a lot of Christianity that looks like that, but that's not Christianity at all. Because God uses people. His cre- he uses, so he works through the people of God. So we believe in the God who is over, the, the transcendent God. And that same God also works through people creatively. We saw it in Ephesians 2.10, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when God is using you guys, and when he's using me, and when he's using the people of God, that's the same God who rules over everything. He works creatively through us, but he's not only over all, and he's not only through all, and this is the kicker, he is in you all. This speaks of God dwelling within permanently and completely, imminently taking up residence in the life of a human being. Isn't that like mind-blowing? 
Like, if you're here today, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God lives inside of you. Like, he has the deed of your life. His name is on it. You pull up the tax records, it says, Jesus is in here. Like, that's crazy. God created you to be a holy habitation for him. Not only over, not only through, but God hangs out here. And I think that that is seriously cool. And you should too. You should be like, man, God is over everything. He works through us and he's in us. That's who God is. See how the fruit of humility is unity? See how that works? When the church is unified, when it's humble, then we can be unified because there's only one spirit, there's only one body, one church, there's only one hope, there's only one Lord, and because there's only one Lord, there's one faith and one baptism, there's only one Father and Lord of all, God of all. And not only is, is he over all, he's through us all, and he's in us all. But we have to be humble enough to say, that's who God is. So the fruit of humility is unity. Now, in verse 7, look at what happens here. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, these verses here is kind of a bridge between this unity to what Paul wants to talk about next. And what this teaches us is that unity is a gift of grace from Jesus. Unity is a gift of grace from Jesus. Now, let me show you how this is going to work. He just explained that the fruit of humility is unity. And then that this unity now, it's a gift of grace from Jesus. Look at how it begins, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see that? To each one of us, to us as individuals, grace was given according to the measure of Jesus' gift. That's why I say unity is a gift of grace from Jesus. Just taking the words and rearrange them to make a point. Each one of us has been given a measure, a gift of grace to be a part of this unity. And then the Apostle Paul has one of his very famous digressions that are so deep, it takes volumes of books to unpack it. And verses 8, 9, and 10 are those kind of verses where literally I have volumes on these verses because it's like a little aside for Paul, but it's, it's like for all of us, we're like, what? Because first what he does is he quotes Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now, Psalm 68, 18, for those of you who are discerning Bible students, if you read what Paul quotes and if you read Psalm 68, 18, there are differences there. There are differences. The first difference, of course, is that he changes he or you to he. So the psalmist is saying, God, you've done this. And now Paul's saying he did this because he's pointing it to Jesus. And then in Psalm 68, 18, it literally says, and he received gifts for men. And now we get, and he gave gifts to men. And modern commentators go crazy about how the Apostle Paul, how can he be inspired by the Holy Spirit if he misquotes Psalm 68, 18? 
Now I'm here to tell you this, because some of you, this doesn't mean anything to you. I'm going to give it to you anyway. Tuck it in your back pocket. For those of you who are very, very serious, you have to realize that in 21st century America, post-enlightenment, we have a very specific set of goggles through which we view the world. And you have to realize that that goggle is only 200 years old. And that 2,000 years ago and 2,800 years ago or 3,000 years ago when the Psalms were written, they didn't have those same goggles. And if you read the Talmud or the writing of the rabbis, which is the discussions of the law by the rabbis of Second Temple Judaism, you'll realize that they apply scriptures differently than we do with our scientific methodology. So we believe that X plus Y equals whatever. And in that culture, when a certain concept comes in, the rabbis have no problem saying, oh, this means this, this, and this. And this is applied this, this, and way. So what's interesting is the psalmist is saying, God, you've done this, and you've received gifts for men. And, and the apostle Paul's like, look, this is all pointing to Jesus. And he received gifts for men because he gave them to men. That Jesus is the flow through from God to give gifts to humanity. And in that culture, completely acceptable Bible interpretation. Maybe not so good for us today with the things that we value, but in that culture, totally acceptable. So you have to realize that just because we look at the world this way doesn't mean that everyone's always looked at it this way. Sometimes you're wearing, you ever wear rose-colored glasses? And you think the world is rose-colored? But not everybody sees it through rose-colored glasses. I have these really cool, those of you who've had your cataracts done, they're called solar shields. You know, they got the sides on them. My grandfather has those. And, and I remember I was in Florida. I didn't have a pair of sunglasses. And he gave them to me. They're yellow-tinted. I, I, I mean, it, they looked funky, but I liked the way they looked on me. My grandpa's like, you look good. I'm like, you're blind, Grandpa. And of course I look good. He started laughing. He's like, no, I think it really fits your face, you know. And I'll wear them one of these days. They're crazy looking, you know. I like them. But to me, when you wear these cataract, almost goggles that are yellow-tinted, everything looks different. And if you forget that you're wearing them, you think that the world looks that way until you take them off. And you're like, wow, okay, it's not nearly as light out. I can't nearly see as clearly as I normally do. We have to realize that we wear a set of cultural goggles that Jesus didn't wear. You have to remember that. 2,000 years ago in Israel, it's a lot different than 21st century in the Pacific Northwest of America. And just because we have those goggles doesn't mean those goggles are always right. You know how I know? Because if the Lord tarries, there's going to be all sorts of people writing in about 50 years saying how nuts we were to think the things that we thought. And you know how I know that's going to happen? Because we're writing the same things about people who lived 50 years ago. And they wrote the same things about people who lived 50 years before that and 50 years before that. So the Apostle Paul's inflection of this verse, I don't believe is wrong at all. It's just a different way of interpreting and applying scripture than we necessarily hold today. So, but with that being stated, it says that he ascended on high he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul gets in, in verses 9 and 10, speaking both about the descension of Jesus and then the ascension of Jesus. Now, when it talks about Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, there's two ways to interpret that. One, it speaks about his death. Very common way to talk about dying, being buried into the lower parts of the earth. Or by the time you get to First and Second Peter, Peter is interpreting that when Jesus died, although his body rested in the grave, he went down to dis descend it into those who were in holding in a place called Sheol or Hades, and he preached the gospel to them and delivered people out of there. Jesus is real. Because there is one Lord, there is one faith. 
The unity of believers in Jesus is vital. It recognizes that God is sovereign over everything. Pastor Daniel described how God works through humanity as a God who is over all. People make the mistake of focusing on one of those aspects, creating a different God. Humility allows us to say that's who God is. That one church has to reflect God's love and do it accurately. Thanks, Josh. Pastor Daniel would like to invite you to join him each day on Facebook for his two-minute messages. Pastor Daniel shares from his heart and God's Word in a way that will impact your life. It's the perfect way to inject a little bit of Jesus into your routine. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow the links to the two-minute messages. Now, here's Josh with a preview of what Pastor Daniel will be covering in the next edition of Jesus Is Real Radio. Place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time here on Jesus Is Real Radio as we continue through the book of Ephesians, where we'll see how the fruit of unity is ministry and the fruit of ministry is maturity. We are all called to be evangelists, and Jesus gives us all different gifts so we can accomplish this. We'll find out why God planned for us to evangelize in this way, and how we personally can be built up to minister. We've run out of time today, but we do encourage you to tune in next time as Pastor Daniel will continue sharing with us from the book of Ephesians. That's next time on Jesus is Real Radio.